This Westwards mini masterclass is a production of Westwards, the Western Sydney Literature Organisation. For more information on Westwards and what we do, please go to westwards.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Westwards Mini Masterclass with me, James Roy. I am your host, as always, and I'm sitting here with Mary Brown and Jamie Oxenbold. How are we, folks? Are we well? Very well, thanks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We're, full we're, of mountain air. Mountain air. Yeah. We are here sitting in, um, in Dave's Cafe that we um, featured on the podcast a little while back, uh, and it's your first time in this beautiful little cafe, isn't it? It's, it is. It's a yeah. work in progress, apparently. Oh, really? It looks like there's a whole lot of toys hanging around there. <laughs> a lot of that, toys. I believe Dave likes his I don't toys. know where they've come from, but I'm very jealous. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you're, you're the latest of a crop of people who have uh, come to Daffodil Cottage in Katoomba. So welcome to Katoomba and Daffodil Cottage. You guys are both from the other side of Sydney, is that right? Yes. yes. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So you've crossed the wall to come and hang with the, the West. <laughs> we, we, we appreciate that. Well, my brother lives up here, so I, I've, oh, okay. I've spent a bit of time up here yeah, in Blackheath. And you're both playwrights and actors, is that correct? No, I'm just a playwright. You're just a playwright. Yeah. Don't say just a playwright. You're <laughs> only a playwright. Just yeah. One of our greatest playwrights. Uh, I used to be an actor, but uh, no, I'm not anymore. Yeah. And Jamie, uh, I recognise your face. Remind me, what have you been in? You've been in a couple of TV things. And, uh, uh, well, quite a few, I think. Right? I've been in lots of little parts in TV things, but most of people recognise my face from ads, from ads. being ads, because I've done lots of ads over the years. But mostly, I've worked in theatre. That's been my, that's been my okay. bread and butter. Is that yeah. is that your first love, theatre? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And this is a question I ask everybody who ever writes or performs in theatre, and I, the answer is usually the same. But I just like to hear people say it because it's. It's, there's always a little bit of nuance to it, but what is it about theatre that really floats your boat? Um, for me, it's because you have much more agency as an actor. You're just not a hired gun. You turn up on a set, on a film set, and you're just a tiny cog in a... or a TV set, and you're a tiny cog in the director's sort of um, dream. So much so that you can end up doing what Ricky Gervais did and make a whole show about being the yeah. unrecognised extra. Right? Yeah, or end up on the cutting room floor or what you intended to say and do doesn't end up in it. So you you just don't have any sort of agency or, or control over it. But as an actor on stage, obviously you're the ultimate one who the, the, you know, the performance falls with, even if the director asks or the writer asks you <laughs> to do certain things, you know, you're the one who's there. So you, so you, I guess it's about control is what I like about it and the immediacy, obviously. Well, that's end, the word you know. I, was, I was hedging towards because that's the word that always comes up is the immediacy of, you know, there's no cutting, yeah. room, there's no cutting room down the track later where things get yeah. or whatever, what you deliver is what you deliver, right? Exactly, yeah, and the response that you get is... From immediate. the director or from the audience? Well, from the audience, yeah. <laughs> the response from the audience is immediate and it's very satisfying and um, so that would be, yeah, is that's what I love. Is there something about the, um, just from the actor's point of view before we move to the writing side of it, is there something about that, um, the tightrope of, you know, the possibility that you could just completely blank on your lines I mean I know that's something that probably doesn't happen much to professional experienced actors but I imagine it's always sort of lurking there isn't it yeah I think probably that um that's the yeah the thrill and the danger of of performing live for anyone for any musician or anyone mm-hmm. any speaker anyone is is a part of it and that adrenaline and that rush of and that 
build up to it because you rehearse and you mull stuff over and then and, you know and then you're out there in front of people so yeah there's definitely a sense of there's no safety net because you know when you're filming you just stop and do it again and, and so yeah that, that's definitely a part of it I think and maybe maybe without knowing that you're addicted to that sort of performance that style of performance you, you I think theatre people who are theatre actors or any, any, anyone who works in theatre I think they are, they are addicted to that sort of that level of possibility of failure. Yeah. <laughs> so, thrill. Mary, is it the same for you as the writer? Do you sit there on opening night and just sort of go, "Geez, I hope this works." Oh yeah. I mean, look, I think it's good to be really frank about it. I have a love-hate relationship with it. I think theatre is sort of like the extreme sport of the arts because it doesn't have that safety net, you know. And I think what's I think it's tyranny and it's beauty are sort of one in the same thing in that it's it's so fragile. It's so fragile for a piece of theatre to... The tipping point between it working and not working is often quite fragile. I think there's something about the relationship between the direct vein between the audience and the performer that is... It's that relationship. I don't... I, I don't it's so mercurial and I don't think you can capture it in any other... Form. And I think for me, um, as a writer, I, I, I'm, I don't think visually. I think, I think in characters and I, you know, I pick up conversations. I think I, I, I'm always on record. So I think theatre lends itself to people who are very character-based in their writing more than possibly writing for screen and, and, not, and prose writing. I think theatre is the real home of character-based of people who voices and differentiation in voices always fascinate me. Um, well, this seems to check out on what I've heard other people say as well about theatre, the whole idea that, um, you know, you... Lines of dialogue carry much more weight in theatre than they, say, they often do in film and television because you don't have that ability to just have an establishing shot that goes for 20 yeah. seconds or whatever. Mm. Um, do you write for film as well? Have you done? Um, not for film. I've, I've written for a bit for telly. I mean, I've written um, a few sketches for um, Jungle, what used to be Jungle Boys, and I think they're now called Jungle. I've written a few sketches. Um, for, written... for the Elegant Gentleman's... Yeah, that one. Yeah. The one that everyone struggles okay. with, the title, The Elegant Gentleman's Guide to, guide to <laughs> Knife Throwing or Fighting. Knife Fighting. fighting. Yeah. So I have to ask, as a massive fan of that particular show, come on, which sketches were they? I, I only wrote two and I can't remember, I don't even know if one of them got on, but I know one that got on because I saw it and it was, uh, it was about, it was a, m making fun of the gourmet food industry and the high-end restaurant um, yeah, right. and sort of world and people not being able to say if something was not quite right and meals just getting more and more bizarre. Mm -hmm. So I had them serve up, um, it was called something like, it was some long Italian name and it was actually, it was called... Um, a Belafonte hors d'oeuvre, and it was actually a really large man. So they bought out a, a really large man in a loincloth. Harry Belafonte, obviously. <laughs> yes, yeah, something like that. And they, they, these very posh people had to negotiate, kind of going, you know, while the, the chef stood over them, sort of going, OK, I'll... I'll. I mean, it was very dark. They're yeah, playing the, the Emperor's New Clothes kind of game. Yeah. Going, well, do we, do we tell him it's just a guy? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I love um, that. But that might have been the only one that made it on screen. I'm not sure. Um, but... 
and it was a, through a competition actually. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, and I remember just writing about twenty, and it was a real delight because with a play you have to write the whole world from beginning to mm-hmm. end with mm-hmm. all the consequences and history. But in sketches, you you really just write a beat. Or, or two oppositional beats, and it's quite fun to just yeah, yeah. have to do the short world when you're used to writing a marathon. I think we do the sketch. The Australians and Brits do sketch stuff pretty well. I think Americans tend to struggle a bit more with it. Oftentimes, I'd watch something mm. like Saturday Night Live, and I yeah. just think, okay, guys, you know, like this is a this is a thirty second sketch, and you, it's now been five minutes. We need to mm. wrap it up. Yeah, no, I yeah. couldn't agree more. I find that they're they're, they're so sort of. Indulgent with yeah. their characters, and well, I think it's because they bring in guest stars, superstars, and they yeah. sort of feel they need to get the most out of, mm. um, you know, whoever. Um, yeah, um, I think my, one of my favourite sketches was of all time. It's a very, very short sketch that would have taken about two hours to set up, but it's all over in about five seconds. It's from the sketch show, the one that Kitty Flanagan was on, and Lee Mack, and the guys that walk into a hotel foyer wearing suits of armour. And the guy says, the woman says, "Can I help you?" And the guy says, "Can we get a room for two nights, please?" <laughs> and it's just, it's so it's so perfect, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's all over. Whereas I think Saturday Night Live would have made this like a fifteen yeah. mega mega mix. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and the and the Brits and us too, I think, play that stuff so straight. You know, because that's why it's funny. Is because I've I've seen that sketch, and it's because they're just completely. There's nothing out yeah, of the yeah, ordinary yeah. about it. But the Americans, they would have they're, been. They're all straight men, all of them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was interesting, I was, I was talking to somebody, this is a bit off topic I guess, but um, I was talking to some people that yesterday, just yesterday about how um, Faulty Towers, you know, the 12 episodes, they knew how to get out right on time. Yeah. And then John mm, yeah. Larroquette came back and tried to remake it for American audience, basically line for line, except that Mrs Rogers episode where she has a hearing aid and she drops the battery and all that stuff. And that that's the one episode where... Basil Foley thinks he has finally won, like he's Sisyphus <laughs> pushing, the, pushing the rock up the hill every single day and he's fine, he's holding, he's holding his valuable vase, he's got the money, his horse has just won, his wife doesn't know, everything checks out and then she says something, he drops the vase and he goes back to the beginning. <laughs> but when John Larroquette did it, they got to that bit and he wins and they rolled the titles. Oh, really? And I was tearing my hair out going, you just don't <laughs> get it, you didn't get it at all. Anyway. Yeah. Isn't it funny? I think um, Larry. Now I think just now I'm thinking Larry David in Curb Your Enthusiasm is like the modern day Basil Fawlty. He is a bit, yeah. Yeah, I've got a bit of a love hate with the thing with with Larry David because the stuff that he wrote for Seinfeld I thought was so much better because he had an ensemble cast to kind of dissipate that stuff. But when it's just Larry rinse and repeat every episode, it does get a bit samey after a while. But no, I I think you're right. It's that sort of whole Mm. Sisyphus. Thing yes. all over again, yeah. isn't it? Mm. Yeah. So speaking of myths, that's a nice segue. <laughs> I'd like to point out how good that segue was, everyone. Um, the project that you're working on while you're up here is is around. Well, I'll let you describe it because I, I'm probably going to describe it quite clumsily because I've got my own sort of. We were talking about earlier this sort of interestingness. So, what's the project you're working on, and how would you sum it up? They both draw in their breath, take a sip of their coffee, look at each other, yeah. and say nothing. I love it. It's, it's, um, it's, it's so hard to sum something. Up. I mean, we will, but it's, it's just very hard. when you're in the middle of, in the middle of it, it's hard to yeah, put your done finger on. Just before you went home, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's about look. It's a, it's essentially about 
humans and their relationship with animals and the specificity of that mm. and the intimacy of it. Um, like Jamie and I talked a lot about how often your pet will see things that you wouldn't even do in front of your partner. <laughs> and so it's for us, we see it as a porthole to look at um, some of the extremes and oddities mm. of human behaviour. And we also look at, it's also we're very interested in the, the way anim, people get animals to plug holes in their lives, you know, so for loneliness, for um, for fear, you know, so that the... the because they can't be bothered buying a burglar alarm, so they get a dog. You know? Yeah, um, and and also the classic thing of what animals project onto people. Um, what, what do you mean by that? Can you dig in a little bit on that? I think we're always trying to give animals human qualities, and we're mm. always trying to interpret their behaviour in terms of how our, our psychology works. So I think. It's a really, it's kind of bee's dick to, to people sort of deciding that, you know, oh, they're doing this because they feel this or because they love me, but really that's just about the person wanting to be loved. So they've interpreted that as, you know... Um, I thought what you, I thought where you were going with that was, that's why I asked you to dig in a bit on it, was, I thought maybe you're talking about... I've got family who are involved in showing dogs and you see that there are certain people with certain types of dogs that they very much reflect. You know, the people with the Afghans tend to be yeah. quite flamboyant people with uh, the perfect hair. And then you've got the people with the sort of American pit bulls and they're often a bit more kind of, yeah. you know, yeah. no nonsense. And then you've got the poodle people. And is that is that is that something you see played out? I think we link our animals. Our animals are very much appendages to our identity. That's, that's for sure. And I know, I know people get very... <coughs> often everyone wants everyone to love their pet because mm. it means they it's sort of just one petition away from them loving you, you know. <laughs> um, it's weird though, isn't it? Because, like, like, I mean, we've got two Dachshunds at home plus a cat and some chickens, but Lula, the little one, if, if you let her, she would lick my arm for like an hour. She just loves licking my arm because she's an old rescue mother dog who's had lots of... And so she likes licking my arm. If anyone else's dog tries to lick my arm, like, I can't get away fast enough. What's that about, do <laughs> you think? We, yeah, we have an intimacy with animals and we share with, we have an honesty and an intimacy with animals that we have with no one else. And that, I think that was part of it, is that we, how fascinating we found that behaviour. Mm. Um, how, and how strange that behaviour is. So how have you approached that from a writing point of view? <coughs> you, what was... What was your in? Because you've obviously gone, okay, so we're interested in uh, intimacy with our pets, with, you know, how we choose our pets, what we choose our pets for, whether in fact we choose our pets or our pets choose us, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But what was the in into the, for people listening at home who are writers or creators, what's the in to take that big, fairly big nebulous idea and turn it into something that is, that you can hang a, a, a production hander on. on or whatever it yeah. might be? Well, should we talk about the how we started? Yeah, yeah I'd love <coughs> you to do that. Yeah, yeah. We started in lockdown and, and it was when talk of pets and getting pets and people being lonely and people being needy and people people's lives sort of, um, you know, taking right-hand turns. Yeah, it was all pets and musical instruments, wasn't it? Yeah, the, the world just... Yeah. <laughs> and active, and active 
So the world, the, you know, things kind of went awry. And so we thought we'd write um, some monologues. We thought, why don't we give each other a, a bit of a, um, a task just to fill our time and to keep ourselves creative and our minds active, to give ourselves some tasks of writing some five to ten minute monologues, sort of Alan Bennett style talking heads monologues from the point of view of, of people possibly in lockdown or possibly but, but dealing with a, a pet in, um, in an intimate way, and I don't mean that how it sounded, in, you know, in a getting, getting a pet, losing a pet, um, why someone might form a bond with an animal through loneliness or lose an animal or, or anything like that. We just left it open and said, let's write some monologues about that. And so we, we wrote two or three monologues and we enjoyed doing it. And then we started thinking, well, what about, what about writing some from the animal's point of view? Cause, oh, so you know, these, were, these were at this stage still only from the... Yeah, these were just the pe- just, yeah, people from, you know, human... I don't like, human to, use, I don't like to use the word pet owners. The human partner in the human animal yeah, bond. Exactly, yeah, exactly, yeah, the right. human side. So we thought, well, what about some from the animal? So then we wrote some from, like, a bird's point of view, from, you know, needing... Um, how does a bird see its lonely owner, and why it might, you know, why their owner might be depressed, or, or why a cat, you know, one is from a cat's point of view, um, about you know swapping owners and how he pref- they preferred their previous owner, and and so that that was the kind of genesis of it. And that well, was, you approach that, it in a comic we, way necessarily. Yeah, initially, yeah, initially, I think. For me, anyway, I think we, yeah, they were sort of, they were quite shallow, not shallow, they were just surface, sort of, a little bit, almost a little bit sketch-like, I guess. And then we just started to dig deeper and deeper and, and kind of to, you know, like you were, we were talking about before with the animal-bond relationship is, the animal-human um, relationship is so complex and so mythical and so, you know, and touches on everyone, everyone's... Everyone has had a pet in some point in their life, or had a relationship with an animal. I would say. So. Well, I mean, I think about you know, Family Guy, which is not so much satire as just fairly coarse comedy most of the time. But there's a, mm. a line in that that kind of peaked a, a bit of a moment for me. It's when Stewie, who, as we know, is the, the kid who is just horrible, like he's a narcissistic toddler who suddenly starts laughing and says to Brian the dog, I've just thought of something happy and sad at the same time. And Brian says, what's that? He says, I'm almost certainly, I'm almost certainly going to outlive you. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's, that's horrible, right? But that, yeah. that, is that, that's the kind of truth that you have to dig into. Though, yeah. Right? Yeah. So, Mary, how did you approach this? When, when you realised that just doing the comic thing wasn't going to be enough, how did you dig in deeper? Yeah, I was just thinking about that because so we, we we ended up with all these monologues and then we kind of went, well, what do we what do we do? We can't just was there a thread through them or apart from the pet thing? Not really. Um, I can't remember to, to to answer that clearly. But what I know is that we had a week at the Joan, sort of trying to look at how to put them together, and we had a week of going, is can we make something out of this or not? And it was really just a week to go is this worth still investing in or was that just like artistically going to the gym? Doing your scales, yeah. Yeah. And then we we basically set this rule for ourselves that 
underneath, and it, we did things the long, um, unwieldy way because we had to go back. But we did this thing where we went under each, and we could see it was kind of there, but it wasn't as clear as it should be. That under each story, there had to be a wound that the animal was addressing in the human, or the human addressing in the animal, and we had to be really clear to it in the piece. So. Um, now, what, what would be an example of the wound you're talking about? Well, presumably, we're often talking about an emotional wound as much as anything else. But what, what would be some examples? That you well, one of them is some, is a, like a woman who feels like she's unlovable or um, never going to find a partner, and and the the wound is, you know, I mean that's her wound that the animal heals in a way. Or compensates um, for. Or compensates for. Um, uh, uh, grief, you know, losing someone is. An animal is, you know, like a, um, you know, a nurse in that respect, you know, or a, and a psychologist, because ha- having an animal around, I think, is, you know, it's incredibly beneficial for people who are grieving and or but I hear uh, people say this, depressed though. and that sort of thing, or someone who's depressed was one of the wounds that we sort of looked yeah. at. Oh, sorry, sorry to interrupt, yeah. but that. The problem with that is that you, know, but you, you hear this, but that you know, my dog is my therapist. My dog yeah. doesn't talk back much. But sometimes you want a therapist who talks back. Sometimes you want a therapist who actually offers you some clarity to what you're thinking. Yeah. Where do you go then? Do you get a parrot? Like what? <laughs> well, uh, well, in our show, we we that we have that the animals talk. Right. Okay. So yeah, in real life, it would be great if we had a <laughs> be, if the it? dog could could talk back. But yeah. that's what that's kind of what we're investigating is that we have we have this com- we have a, a a dog that is kind of the guiding angel throughout the throughout the whole show now, and is kind of like our introducing our our sort of um, structure for the for the play, for want of a better word, who took who obviously talks and is you know provides therapy and insight into um, the human animal condition, condition you know, related condition yeah, yeah. yeah that um, we, are, oh, sorry. Yeah, we, also, we also talk about um, the kind of negative side of people's relationship with animals about how what happens when people over invest in them and and you know like we've got um, a lady who runs a rescue organization and she is She's just got this Jesus complex about the animals and she's over, she's incredibly controlling and, um, you know, so she's using all that framework, um, obviously, out of some deep insecurity about her agency and power in the world. Maybe it's because the animals can't talk back and so she just... Yeah. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, and there's that, there's, I think we sort of touch on quite a, that a couple of times actually, that is, is that people who can't talk, to, it's like... With people who don't have good human relationships, sometimes this isn't. This is a gross generalisation, but you know, people who find other people tricky mm. generally have animals and have a close relationship with them. That's what I found anyway. Yeah, right. And and having said that about the you know this rescue woman character, I mean we all know there's people that do that work. Are, you know, they're saints, but the, the, it's kind of like there's also people have many different. Um, things aren't black and white in mm. people's characters. There's got to be a certain obsession involved obsession, as well, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, totally, to do that. I mean, yeah. Yeah, you could argue that about teachers as well, though, couldn't you? 
they get paid. I know they, I know they don't get paid much. Yeah. They get paid and they're not necessarily picking up all that shit. Well, I suppose for the little kids, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Well, yeah, I I, we had a we had a cat that was my daughter's cat, um, and Chai was, and my daughter left to go and live in interstate in a fairly in a less than optimal situation, and so she left Chai with us. And then one day, Chai escaped and got run over, and I had to make that phone call to my daughter, which is easily one of the hardest phone calls I've ever had to make. But I was so flat after that because I'd sort of, I'm a, I'm a cat guy. And, and um, on my birthday, my, my wife said, I've got to take you somewhere. I'm not sure and I thought she was taking me to a surprise party. <laughs> but it wasn't. It was to a rescue place in Katoomba yeah. where she had a cat chosen out, picked out for me. And it was the sweetest thing. I don't even know why I tell that story. It just sort of, it's, and yeah. so, and, you know, Suki is my... My girl who, who rescued me in the sense. Yeah. So, you know, I've heard comedians say this, you know, don't say that, oh, you're a rescue. I think Sarah Silverman says, it's not a rescue. Oh, my God, my cat rescued me. And she says, no, that's nonsense. But I don't know, maybe there is something to that. Well, the very, re- the very fact that you t- tell that story, you yeah. know, and it's an emotional, heartfelt story that, you know, I, I, think it, I think that's why we're writing this play is because it's, it's, a, it's a really deep well in humans. I mean, it's, a, it's a well that's been gone, that, that's, that many people have gone to over the years. I mean, there's any number of examples, you know, the Jerry Seinfeld talking about, you know, if you came back, if you were an alien, you came down and found yeah. someone yeah, walking around behind like someone else picking up their poo, who would yeah. you assume is in charge, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. How, do you, how did you find a new angle on, in this, it's such a, it's such a well-trodden path, this human, animal, pet, Thing. Well, I think the, the new angle that we found is hearing the voice of the animals. You know, and, and I know that's been done before. That's not, we're not reinventing the wheel. So I, I would say that, I don't think I've seen that on, certainly on stage before. Mm. I could be wrong, but I don't think I've, I don't think I've seen many theatre people try and attack talk, you know, animals going deeply into their relationship with humans and how they feel about us. We could do a reboot of Old Yeller and just have Old Yeller going, what the hell are you doing, Timmy? Yeah. <laughs> Timmy, put the gun down. No, <laughs> what are you thinking? Yeah, yeah. yeah they, well, they've stood the test of time, these stories, haven't they? Well, that, yeah. that is exactly why when you say to anyone, a lot of kids these days haven't seen Old Yeller, but anyone of our generation, you know, say Old Yeller, it's like, oh, my God, mm. yeah, well, that, that moment, you know, it, mm. And as we were talking about beforehand, I think it's that, that lack of agency that the animal usually has. Yeah. Yeah, the power dynamic is always in the, in the human's favour, but, you know, emotionally, perhaps not. I think that's probably what we're sort of exploring is that emotionally we, we are so invested in, in our animals, you know. And and Gary just, Larson used to play with that idea all the ex- time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. We spoke about that. Oh, yeah. Right, okay. yeah, it's just... You know, that, but that was his career. Yeah. His career was talking animals, talking, you know, being... And how we overlap in the animal kingdom. There's a Venn diagram of, you know, humans and, and we all overlap. We're not, What's we're your not favorite? that different. What's your favourite Gary Larson animal cartoon? <laughs> oh, God, I don't know if I... I mean, the only one I remember is the bummer of a birthmark. <laughs> that's, that's the classic, isn't it? Is the, the deer with a with the target, target on, on its chest. <laughs> exactly. Oh, yeah, it's, a, it's a classic. Yeah. Um, I also like the one with the. Uh, there's a. It's a two framer, and the first frame is um, a tiger down by a waterhole having a nice drink of water, and 
a guy hiding behind the bushes with, or it might be a bear uh, hiding behind the bushes with a gun. And then the second frame is the stuffed animal, but it's reared up, like furious about to attack. And it's yeah. like, you know, that, it says more about the hunter than it says anything yeah. about the animal. Thank you so much for chatting with us. There's a lot more we could talk about, but um, I think it's going to be an interesting thing. How far into this process are we? When, when can we see this on stage? And what's it called, by the way? <laughs> Needs a name. It's got a working title at the called. moment, which is Kingdom. Kingdom, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> we've had some other ideas because for some reason chicken in a biscuit keeps coming up. Um, <laughs> Just because it makes us laugh. Makes us laugh. And so, we go, we want to buy a biscuit. Do you need a biscuit? And because it, it, I don't know, there's something about that title that does kind of, we probably won't use it, but something that we need something that, that holds the quirk of the show because it's very odd and quirky. Um, I don't know, theatre takes a long time to, I, I think I think after this we'll have a, reading of it with some dramaturgical heads in the room and some friends that are actors and we'll just get some feedback then we'll probably go and do one last pass at it and then we'll probably try shopping it mm. um the beauty of it is it's it's one of those very we know it's one of those very bare bones theater pieces that is, is it like a two-hander or two-hander mm-hmm. and no big sets and very which is one of the reasons i love theater that mm. just read that that kind of um you know, that Birkhoff Lepagian kind of invention of the world that just you put on a pair of ears or mm. we were talking about mm. the cockatiel just being in a lime green um, uh, sleeping bag. You know, just simple devices that are very theatrical. But, you know, we'll try and shop it around. So hopefully 2024, 2025. Oh, before that. Oh, I'm thinking... Next week. I'm thinking... <laughs> tomorrow night. I'm ready to go. <laughs> and Jamie, as the actor in this, you're, you're, you're writing this with yourself in mind? Yeah, so, yeah, myself and... Yeah, you'd be, be crazy to kind of go, now I'll hand this to someone else to have all the fun, right? This yeah, is... absolutely. That's why I became a writer, to write for myself, not to write for <laughs> someone else. Of course. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much for, for chatting with us today, and um, I'm glad you've enjoyed the time and that it's still... You've got a few more days yet. It's only Thursday, so you've got a little bit of time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we're, we're in good shape, and we've done... You know, we've come a long way. I mean, that's the beauty of being siloed in a house for especially in a collaboration, is that you're just forced to do this and nothing else. Yeah, and yeah. It's like you compact months and months of work down into one week, which is, you know, yeah. so beneficial. Because you talk about it when you're having dinner, you talk about it when you go for a walk, you think it's just, mm. it's really it, it great. Become, yeah, it just envelops you for the whole, the whole time. Yeah. Which, which can be one of the, diff- my own experience with residencies, that can be sometimes too much. You kind of feel like, you get like when I do when I've done residences in the past when I'm writing, you go there with the intention of writing for twelve hours a day, and in the end you just don't. You can't. Um, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. But um, look, I'd, I'd also like to, as always, acknowledge the Adess Family Foundation for their uh, generosity, and also Katie Jenkins, the owner of Daffodil Cottage in the Blue Mountains. And uh, thank you to Jamie Oxenbold and Mary Brown. Thank you. Thank Pleasure. you. Thank you.